Today's sermon comes from Matthew 12, 22 to 37. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom your sons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Imagine, if you will, you're on vacation. You walk around and you see a sign written in six different languages that says, don't touch, don't eat, don't stand near, don't lean against, don't even breathe near a certain object. Being a rational human being, what would your response be? Would you see that thing with all those warnings in all these different languages? And would you do what that sign says? Would you stay away from that object? I pray and hope you would. But a couple of bros on spring break down in uh, South America uh, were enjoying themselves and came across the manicule tree. The manicule tree is this beautiful tropical tree that has gorgeous limbs, gorgeous leaves, and it's got fruit on it and the fruit looks delicious. And guess what? If you eat that fruit, the fruit is absolutely delicious. It's Instagram worthy, it's social media worthy. I wish that y'all could see this a little bit better, but I promise y'all, if you look up this on Ash Jeeves or Alta Vista and you search the manicule tree, you will clearly find how beautiful that tree is. It's something where you just really feel like everyone needs to see how blessed you are by being in front of this tree. The problem is this thing is massively deadly. It's massively deadly. A couple of guys were on spring break with their friends. They saw this tree. They were probably indulging in some sort of adult flavored beverage. And they came up to this tree, hung out by, and they started eating the fruit. They loved the fruit so much. They were handing it to their friends. They were taking pictures. They were having a blast. And within minutes, their throats start to swell up. 
Their mouths feel like they're on fire. They can't breathe. They're suffocating to death. Locals seeing this group of tourists come, rush them to the hospital where they're in intensive care for over eight hours in excruciating pain. The guy survived, but they came back to the resort towards the end of their vacation having scraped the face of death and were telling people about their experience and the locals were flabbergasted by them. They were like, don't you see all the signs? Don't you see all the warnings? We literally call this tree the tree of death. And you went to it and you ate and you experienced the consequences. Now, this tree outwardly is very beautiful. It makes you want to be around it. The fruit, even on the tree, initially is very sweet to the taste, but inside of it is a toxic and deadly poison that many have not suffered that same healing from. We see this precisely in who Jesus is dealing with today with the Pharisees. Outwardly, they were the most religious, they were the most scholar, the most educated, the most holy in their appearance. They did the right things all the time. If you were raising daughters around them, you would say, that's who you wanna marry one day. If you were a man, you'd say, I wish I could be one of those Pharisees. But Jesus calls them a brood of vipers. Outwardly, they looked the part, but inside they were full of toxic poison. And Jesus connects their poisonous fruit to a poisonous root inside of their hearts. And this causes us to ask this morning, what's the root in our hearts and what's the fruit that we're producing? Because both of those things are deeply connected. Jesus shares with us two things. Evil hearts produce evil words and evil fruit Righteous hearts produce righteous words and righteous fruit. So let's dive in. Let's start with the negative first. Let's see how evil hearts produce um, evil words. Look at verses 20 through 22 through 24 again. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus, and he healed him, so that that man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? They were seeing the Messiah. Could this be him? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So y'all, this text should be a text about miracles and healing and forgiveness and love. But in the heart of this is this wretched, sinful and evil and toxic confession by these religious leaders to Jesus. So what's happening here? Well, this healing and this miracle sets up a greater heart issue for Jesus with these Pharisees. Jesus didn't just do miracles in a vacuum without trying to help encourage the hearts of everyone involved. So we see this demon-possessed man who was blind and mute and he's brought to Jesus and Jesus doing what Messiahs do, he heals. He sets captives free. He frees them from their infirmities. He breaks the bonds of sin and brokenness in this man's life and he's completely forgiven. Jesus is yet again in the book of Matthew proving that he is God in the flesh. But the Pharisees, 
the religious leaders, the ones who knew the Old Testament well, who should have seen these examples of Jesus and said, this is the Messiah. Praise God. They, like the manicule tree, are beautiful on the outside, but inside they were poisonous. Their evil hearts produced this evil confession, and it does us well to see just how evil this confession is. Notice what takes place here. As they see Jesus healed this man, they don't result with praise and joy. They respond with blaspheming Jesus. But it goes even further than that, right? There can be a little B blasphemy where we break the first and second commandment, where we don't use the Lord's name with respect and all, where we say, uh, oh my God, and we say things like that. That is considered lower B blasphemy. They take it to the capital B blasphemy here. They take it beyond words that can be forgiven and they have this unforgivable confession. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Listen again to their statement says it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Now, what they're saying is not just that Jesus is in partnership with Satan. They're going much beyond that. They're not saying Jesus and Satan are boys and they're out conquering the world. That's not what they're saying. They are saying here that Jesus is Satan himself and the spirit that lives in Jesus is Satan himself. Jesus is a demon being controlled by Satan. There's no greater sin than that. Oftentimes we think that, well, all sins punishable by hell, no sins are really greater than the other. That's not true. There are degrees of sin and this is what Jesus calls an unpardonable an unforgivable sin. Look in verses 31 and 32. He says, therefore I tell you, every sin and every blasphemy, that lower be blasphemy, will be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age of come, to come now. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is absolutely unforgivable. There is no soft touch to put on that to comfort your hearts. So we need to ask what is involved in blaspheming the Holy Spirit? There's two parts to this. Number one is attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Seeing the Holy Spirit move and calling that work a work of Satan. Are y'all there? That's part of it, but it gets much deeper than this. At the core of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a ongoing rejection of the Holy Spirit's work in your lives or in the lives of others that hardens you to the point where you can see fruit of the Spirit, where you can know evil and just say, no, that's all Holy Spirit, that's all Satan. That's all Satan. That's not Holy Spirit at all. So it's both and here. It's a constant and continual rejection of the Holy Spirit, attributing those works to Satan. Then that goes on for the rest of your life until you meet Jesus face to face and you absolutely regret it. 
Jesus says that this horrific rejection, this ongoing rejection, this constant blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is absolutely unforgivable. It's uncurable. But here's the point to this. The person guilty of this sin could care absolutely less. The person who has a heart this hard, this toxic, this evil, could truly care less about the Holy Spirit, and they're just gonna keep on keeping on, and they're gonna wish they would have never done that. Now, naturally, that leaves most sane Christian and sane human to come to the place of, have I ever done this? I sure hope not. If that's you, this categorically removes you from being in the realm of being guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The mere fact that you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, the fact that you would never want to do this, that you would never want to be uh, warring against God and His Spirit is already proving that you don't belong in this category. So, the reason why pastors have to spend so much time talking about this is for normal Christians, we hear this and it's terrifying. Yes, it's absolutely terrifying, but if you are in Christ, if you are saved, you don't have to worry about this, right? But we have to spend time talking about this. So to be guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not just a one-time act, but it's a lifelong hardening of your heart, completely obstinate to the work of the Spirit in your life. So on YouTube, there's actually a viral trend that's been going on for several years of teenagers going on and just repeating this word of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Well, yeah, they're being unwise and unintelligent by doing that. But that just one-time act isn't going to make you guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit to an unpardonable level, right? If that keeps going on and on and on and on in your life, that's where the hardness and where Jesus leaves you to your sin can be problematic. For Christians, this isn't something you have to worry about. You don't have to worry about this because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Notice Jesus's words in John 14, 16, and 17. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he does what? He lives in you and will be with you. Now, this is important because Jesus walks through the logical uh, fallacy of the Pharisees' argument, right? If Christians can do this, then the Holy Spirit means the Holy Spirit is warring against itself inside of you, and God is not a God of confusion, right? God's kingdom is not warring against itself. So Christian, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, that kingdom will not be divided. The Holy Spirit will check you. The Holy Spirit will not allow this blasphemy or this sin to continue, and you will be brought to repentance for this. So my encouragement for you is trust the Spirit. God's kingdom's not at war. The Spirit lives in you. You don't have to worry about blaspheming the Holy Spirit because it's actually impossible for true Christians to commit that sin. Are we all on the same page, right? Okay, if I've made that as 
if that clear as mud, come talk to me about this. But if you're in Christ, you don't have to panic about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. However, we're still on hook for our mouths. So take blasphemy and put that all aside. Let's get back to just what it means to have uh, wise words that come out of our mouths. Now, Jesus's words are very necessary for us to hear. One of my favorite quotes about Christianity and our mouths is from uh, this gentleman. His name's Jay Sidlow. Listen to this quote. One of the first things that happens when a man is really filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not that he speaks in tongues, but that he learns to hold the one that he already has. We don't see that with the Pharisees. We don't see this with the Pharisees at all. Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees proves that their evil hearts are producing evil language. And blasphemy aside, what's the result of having evil language? What's the result of having mouths that just produce garbage talk? Look at verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, blasphemy aside, what evil language does is it not just hurts the person you're in uh, a conversation with, but it actually scatters and wars against Jesus and the Holy Spirit gathering sinners to himself. Our words have powerful effects. And when we don't use our words to build other people up, our words actually are fighting against Jesus using language to draw people to himself. Therefore, evil language isn't just sinful in and of itself, but it's actually working against the Great Commission, meaning making disciples of all nations. It's fighting against the gospel moving forward. But this passage gets even more painful. You see, the ones who were in charge of opening the scriptures to other people to teach them about the Messiah saw the Messiah directly in front of them and used their knowledge and the evil of their hearts to continually put barriers from people coming to Jesus. The crowd was watching. They were turning to Jesus. Can this be the Messiah? No, that's Satan. They're doing everything they can, the Pharisees, to keep people from Jesus. And the hypocrisy does not get worse than that. These were teachers given the ability to teach the scriptures and they all point to Jesus and they did nothing but put up roadblocks. In light of this though, how does the Pharisees' hypocrisy give us caution today. Well, if we know our Bibles, if we're all called to the Great Commission, which we are, we need to remember the power that words have. We need to remember the power of our words. William Burkett commented on this passage saying, what a bridle should this text be to extravagant tongues? Let your speech be always seasoned with salt, that is, with wisdom. For our words may mischief others a long time after they were spoken. How many years may a frothy or a filthy word, a profane scoff, 
an atheistical jest stick in the minds of them that hear it. After the tongue that spake it is dead. A word spoken is physically transient, but morally permanent. We need to realize, church, that our words are powerful and we have a responsibility to use them well. Our words can have deep impact in the life of others. For years, I've been doing pre-marriage counseling with couples that are looking to get married. And if you've been through, uh, been through my pre-marriage gauntlet, I have this massive packet that I send you. And one of the questions that I ask is, do you remember a time in your life when somebody said something nice about you? Do you remember a time in your life when somebody said something hurtful to you? And how did that affect you? The majority of the couples that I've met with say, well, it was kind of hard to remember the good words that were spoken, but I remember at a very young age, a parent, a coach, a teacher, somebody saying something to me and I'm still dealing with that today. You see, our harmful words stick in our hearts much more um, uh, tangibly than a lot of good words are spoken. So we need to be uh, wise. We need to have a bridle on our tongue. I wish we could go through James and Proverbs about the power of our speech, but we just don't have time. But we need to remember we have the privilege of verbal communication to use to build others up with our speech. And when we don't do that, we should be quick to repent and ask for forgiveness as fast as those hurtful words fly out of our mouths. The thing for all of us is we all struggle with this, me included. This is five fingers pointed at me. We struggle with this. We struggle with this sin. We say things out of line, out of time. We say the right things the wrong way. It's exhausting thinking about the constant condemnation that our tongues bring in our lives. But Jesus says it's far greater than that. What comes out of our mouths is actually a diagnostic for what's going in your heart. Now, for some of you really good Christians, you might be saying, well, I don't curse. I haven't said a curse word in blank years. That's awesome. I've heard this text boil down to just Christians not cursing. That's great. I'm not pro-cursing. But what I am saying is that our Christian language moves much further beyond just saying filthy words. Our speech is much greater than that. Here's some diagnostic questions that we can all use to allow the Spirit to do work in our hearts. How do you treat others when they fail? Right? You might not curse at them, but you might be hypercritical. You always do this. I warned you about that. I told you so. You knew you shouldn't have done that. You failed again. How many times do I have to do this? I better go do something else to help you. We can be critical of others when they fail. Here's another diagnostic. Do people feel safe to share hard feedback with you? Are you that person in your life where people feel like they can't bring hard stuff to you because they know you're gonna take it the wrong way? Because you're gonna be defensive, because you're gonna fly off the handle. Do people avoid having anything other than surface level conversation with you because they're scared to get into the heart with you? 
Ask yourself these questions. Do people experience you as a fixer instead of an empathizer? So people start talking to you less and less. People come to you and they really need you to have shoulders to just weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But if you're a fixer like me, some of the feedback you might get regular is like, hey, I'm not here for you to fix this thing. I'm here for you to sit with me in this thing. We should be open to being able to hear that feedback. How do you talk about your children or spouse when they're not around? That's a big one. How do you talk about the people you love behind their backs? Do you talk about their sins, their embarrassing stories? Do you bash them or demean them and when other people may be doing the same things? Or do you take the unpopular stance and you just exit out of that conversation, right? It's easy to get roped into spouse and children bashing. Kids, how do you talk about your parents when they aren't around? How do you talk about your friends when they aren't around? What does your language look like online? What does your language look like in the dugout? I learned more bad words in a dugout in middle school than I've heard the rest of my life. I am pro sports, but dugouts can be a rough place. How many times do we not share the gospel with people because we're scared of rejection? Particularly Christians who live with parents who aren't believers. How often do we not share truth and love with our family members that we're concerned about? because we don't wanna seem like the fundamentalist weirdo Christian who's on some sort of kick to save the world. How often do we hold back that truth because we're scared of getting into those awkward waters of rejection? You see, our language does include cursing, but I hope with these diagnostics, we see that our language is much deeper than just curse words. It's actually what's going on inside of our hearts that comes out of our mouths and y'all, I've been in the church long enough and I've met plenty of non-cursing Christians who are cynical, judgmental, angry, pessimistic, graceless, frustrated with everybody under the sun and hold everyone to an expectation for their Christian lives far greater than they hold themselves to. There's nothing more that scatters the gospel than a church of people that outwardly look the part, but inwardly are full of that type of toxicity. May we learn, not just from the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but just the general hypocrisy of the Pharisees and encourage the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and uproot those sins in our heart. May we encourage the gospel to go forward in our lives and help us to produce gospel gathering language instead of gospel scattering language. That's a painful truth for us to grapple with, but there's hope there. And with that, we come to our final point. So just as evil hearts produce evil words, righteous hearts produce righteous words. Look with me with uh, verses 35 through 37. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. 
I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, not surprisingly, this text gets overshadowed with the blasphemy of the spirit and the unpardonable sin. Yes, that's very true. But notice this passage is full of grace. It's a passage of healing. It's a passage of restoration. It's a passage of forgiveness. Look at verse 31, the first half of that. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. That's good news for Christians. This is a text and this is beautiful that gets overshadowed by that unpardonable sins. But for Christians, we need to realize the paradox that we live in. We have hearts that are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but we're still not perfect. We are sinners saved by grace. We are not slaves to sin any longer. The power of sin has been broken in our lives by the Holy Spirit, but the presence of sin remains. That presence of sin in our lives can call us, cause us to fly off the handle at times and to say careless words, hurtful words, and not use honest and loving words when we should. Now, does this make us hypocrites? Absolutely. We preach and teach and share a gospel better than what we live. If people say you Christians are hypocrites, your first response would be, absolutely, you don't even know the worst of it. But we're being transformed. We're being made new. Our hypocrisy and our battle with our words doesn't make us less Christian, but it confirms that we are debtors of grace. The Christian realizes that inappropriate language and then uses that same sinful mouth to ask Jesus for forgiveness and repents. This is our Christian dance. This is the world we live in until we're around the wedding supper of the lamb for all of eternity and the only thing left on our mouth is praise. This is the dance that we will walk. We share a gospel better than what we live. That is Christianity. What characterizes Christ's church is that we are not perfect, right? And we recognize how imperfect we are and how often our words aren't in line with our confession. So Christians indwelled by the Holy Spirit should have regular conversations about their sin and their repentance when we don't use our language the way that God has called us to. We are constantly turning to Jesus for repentance and in faith, and there we find every sin forgiven. It's in those moments where we find that I'm a sinful person, I've used my mouth inappropriately, I'm forgiven, and I don't want to stay like this. Holy Spirit, help me. And what that does is it produces grateful hearts that are full of gratitude, that remember that Jesus says every sin is forgiven, forgiven. And what that does is it changes us over time and our words become more life-giving. And then we're more prone to go share the gospel with others and to share with them that same love and forgiveness that Christ has shared with us. This is how that good treasure springs forth out of our mouths. And it compels us to use our 
uh, language to gather with Jesus and not scatter with him. In consequence, though, that same confession of faith and that ongoing repentance is evidence in our lives that the Spirit is at work in us. And Jesus says, every word you're going to give account for when you stand before the throne, it's in that moment where that final confession is, I have no merit of my own to stand here before you, Father. But it's only in Christ's righteousness that I stand here. It's only in his confession over me that I'm forgiven, that I'm loved, and I'm saved by grace. That is the only way that I can come and be with you forever. That confession only results from hearts indwelled by the Spirit and his ongoing work in our lives, leading us with hearts full of words and love that matches our actions where we speak, and when we fail, we ask for forgiveness, and it causes us to love the unlovable and even hang out with people who might be very different from us, who pharisaical religious leaders will say, Christians shouldn't hang out with those people. But it compels us to love the unlovable and to go into some strange places to bring the gospel, which brings me to my closing story. There's a book called The Kingdom of God is a Party, and it's written by uh, this pastor. His name is Tony Campolo. And he tells about how he was in Hawaii. He was at a speaking engagement. The time, uh, timeline had messed him up. So it was 3.30 in the morning. He couldn't sleep. And so he's in Honolulu, and he's just finding a place to go have a cup of coffee. Pretty much everything's closed except this one pretty grimy, ratchet-looking, rundown place 3.30 in the morning, and he goes in there and sits down. It's a very small room, and he orders a cup of coffee, and he orders a donut. Not long after he orders coffee and donut at 3.30, he says eight to nine, very boisterous in their words and in their appearance, prostitutes walk into this restaurant at 3.30 in the morning and sit all along beside of him. He's sitting there late at night, in a room of prostitutes, and he says, I'm trying to find the exit. I got to get out of here. He's kind of stuck, though, and he's listening to this conversation that's going on. It was full of very colorful language, as you could probably imagine. But one lady said, was telling her friends, he said, tomorrow is my 39th birthday. And her friends started picking at her, said, what do you want to do, throw, throw you a party? What do you? She was like, no, I've never had a birthday party in my life. It's just tomorrow's my birthday. So Tony, Pastor Tony, hears this, and he's like, hmm. So instead of looking for the exit, he starts to figure out, what can we do here? So the prostitutes leave. The owner of the bar's name was Harry. His wife was in the back. She makes the food, and he looks at Harry, and he says, hey, did those ladies come in here every single night? He said, yeah, 3.30 every morning, everybody's in there. He was like, well, the lady, she's having a birthday. Do you know anything about her? He's like, yeah, that's Agnes. She's in here every, every night, 3.30. She's actually really nice. And her friends, she's kind of the butt of most of her jokes. And he says, well, tomorrow at 2.30, can I come in here and set this place up and throw a birthday party for her? And he starts grinning from ear to ear. He was like, you want to throw a birthday party for Agnes? He calls his wife, says, hey, get in here. This stranger wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. And she says, I'd love to do it. I'd love to bake a cake for this. So they have this plan. He leaves, 
goes and gets supplies, 2.30 in the morning, and he comes back. Harry's wife had told everyone in Honolulu about this party. And when he shows up at 2.30, he said it was wall to wall with every single prostitute from Honolulu. And he's this pastor in there putting on this surprise party for Agnes. What's interesting is as soon as 3.30 hits, all the prostitutes walk in and they shout, happy birthday! And they start singing happy birthday to Agnes and she's completely undone. She has no clue what's happening. She's shocked and surprised. This little restaurant is decked out from head to toe just for Agnes. And then they bring out this birthday cake and it's got Agnes and 39 and it's got candles and she starts to weep. Her friends are like helping hold her up because she's so weak. She's looking at it and they're like, blow the candles out. And she couldn't even get enough breath to blow the candles out. So Harry, uh, with his hygiene, blows out all the candles. Be concerned with strangers blowing out your own candles and children. Side note, however, she looks at the cake and she says, before we cut it, can I just look at it for a little bit? And Harry said, you can take the cake home for all I care. And she said, really? She's like, I live right down the road. And so she gets the cake. She's carrying it like a newborn infant. She's weeping the whole time. And she walks out of the bar with that cake and all the other prostitutes are in the room with Pastor Tony and there's no birthday girl there. <laughs> Awkward, right? What do you do in that moment? Tony says it was in that moment. He was like, I just felt the need to pray. And he looked around the room and he said, can I pray for Agnes? And everybody in use was like, yeah, you can pray for Agnes. So he stops, he prays, he thanks God for everybody in the room. He prays for Agnes, for her soul. He prays for everyone in there to know Jesus. And as he concludes his prayer, Harry leans over the table. He's the bar owner. And he says, hey, you didn't tell me you were no preacher. What are you doing in here? And he was like, well, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. He was like, well, what church are you a part of? Tell me. And Tony says, well, I'm the pastor who's a part of a church that's okay with throwing birthdays for a prostitute at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry looked at him and he said, there's no church like that. If there was a church like that, I would be a part of a church like that. And Tony told him about his church and invited him there. But church, wouldn't we all want to be a part of a church like that? That's the church that Jesus came to build. That's the church that the Pharisees absolutely hated. They built this little evil mini kingdom where everybody had to be perfect on the outside and inside they missed the heart of who Jesus came to die for. It was prostitutes. It was sinners. It was people with foul mouths and broken hearts. That's the church that Jesus came to save. And the Pharisees hated it. They hated it. And so they built every wall and restriction to keep sinners away from Jesus. They created a church of people that were beautiful on the inside, but broken on the inside. And Jesus comes to build a church for broken people who are an absolute mess on the outside, but who are being transformed daily on the inside. 
And that's the church that's going to change the world. And that's the church the Pharisees hated and wanted to destroy. Church, when we live like this, we will be called crazy. We will be called the weird ones. We will be called the ones who are in line with Jesus. But Jesus came to save the sick and the needy of which we all are. And so I pray that that produces in us hearts renewed by the Holy Spirit that produces fruit and love where we love people, not just with our words, but with our deeds and that we would love the unlovable the way that Christ loved us. Let's pray. Father, the gospel is so scandalous. There was a religious arm who sought to kill you and did. But Father, that church is still living today because Jesus has resurrected from the grave. Jesus allows sinners to come and find forgiveness. He allows us the, the strength and vulnerability to confess our sins to others even when we failed. He's building a church of people who knows how broken they are, who knows that we share a gospel better than what we live and we can live in that vulnerability knowing that that's the church of Jesus. Father, may we daily pursue you more and more. Would you reach the, the crevices of our heart where toxicity is brewing, where bitterness and anger and frustration and um, overzealous expectations are being held against other people and even in ourselves. And may we give that to you. Would you transform us starting today? Would we uh, be compelled to use our words to gather with you and not scatter? When we do, help us to repent just as quickly. We need you, Jesus, because we're not gonna make ourselves better on our own. We need your spirit to comfort, convict, and confirm your love to us in our lives. Start today, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.